Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Welcome back to a new season of The Victory Kitchen. Today's episode is called Gardening is War Work. So we are going to be talking about victory gardens. But there was just so much to cover that I decided to split this up into two different episodes. So today we'll be talking more about the victory garden program itself and um, kind of the logistics of that program. And then the next episode we'll be talking about the down and dirty details of an actual victory garden. Today I'll be introducing a new cookbook to you. And for our story highlight, we're going to learn how one preacher set the bar for a victory garden. Now, I think victory gardens are something that is very near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. And as I was putting together this episode, it got me thinking about you know, why is that? Why are so many people drawn to the idea of the victory garden? And I think we're gonna um, we're going to explore that a little bit today. So, did you do any gardening this year? I did attempt a garden this year. Um, this is a new house for us, so the garden was already here. So I was kind of dealing with the soil that was here already, and I planted things, but I knew that it would be an experiment to see you know, how things would grow, how bad the weeds were, things like that. My tomatoes are doing pretty well. And, uh, well, pretty well. <laughs> I'm not the greatest at watering, to be honest. So actually, this episode was postponed a little bit um, because I needed to can a bunch of those tomatoes. And it's so tricky when you don't have enough producing at the same time. How do you keep those tomatoes for when you do have enough. <laughs> and um, So today it, it was tricky. I kept some of the fridge, but I still had tomatoes go moldy. So those went on the compost. Anyway, I made some salsa yesterday. So I could have recorded, but I really needed to get that salsa canned. I think my family will be happy having that salsa, but boy, am I glad that's over with. And I'm sure that maybe you've noticed but during this pandemic time, oh, there has been a huge increase in the interest in gardening and World War II victory gardens. A lot of people are calling their garden a victory garden, myself included. And so I find that really fun and really interesting. When I was doing research for this episode, I was surprised actually that there are very few books written about American wartime victory gardens. A lot of books have chapters about them or they kind of talk about them, but there isn't really a book dedicated to World War II victory gardens in America. Also, most of what I found is the use of the term victory garden is to invoke a certain feeling or an image. So there's a cookbook called the Victory Garden Cookbook, but I think it was published in the 70s or the 80s and I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with World War II Victory Gardens. The closest book that I did find was called Cultivating Victory, The Women's Land Army and the Victory Garden Movement by Cecilia Gowdy-Wigand. This covers the UK and America, 
but it mainly focuses on the Women's Land Army. So while I couldn't find any modern, like really solid things about Victory Gardens, what I did find and what kind of scared me a little bit is how much primary source material there is. There is so much from newspaper articles to advertisements to cookbooks to gardening books to magazine articles. There is just a treasure trove of resources out there about Victory Gardens. And that's why we have two episodes on the Victory Gardens. Now, this is a really good thing, but having to like dig through all of that and, you know, sift through it to find the things to share is that was quite the challenge. On the table in my office, I have a whole pile of wartime magazines with articles and images about Victory Gardens. So what this tells me is that the campaign for Victory Gardens during the war was successful in that it was a widespread message encouraging Americans to start a garden. So where did the whole Victory Garden thing come from? It came from an official program called the National Victory Garden Program, or in other places I've seen it called Home Victory Garden Program. So the idea was originally presented at the National Victory Garden Conference or the Defense Garden Conference, I've seen both, in Washington, D.C., in December of 1941. And it was adopted officially on December 20th, 1941. This national program was under the umbrella of the much larger agricultural Food for Freedom campaign launched to enlist farmers in the wartime food effort. The three main objectives were, one, to produce foods for home consumption to the end that the food habits of the family may be improved from the standpoint of nutrition. Two, to maintain the morale of the individual family and the public. And three, to conserve labor, material, and transportation facilities. And it was suggested at this conference that the emblem representing the campaign be a victory V made from two carrots with a tomato between them and the phrase, I have a garden, with the campaign slogan of, Vegetables for Vitality for Victory. (laughs) I think that's kind of corny. But um, I don't know if this was adopted, at least the symbol was adopted, because I personally have not seen that symbol with the two carrots and the tomato. But maybe I just haven't come across it yet. If you have, let me know, because I'm really curious to see it. Um, I have seen other symbols for Victory Gardens, just not that particular one. What's interesting, too, is that this conference also brought up the importance of maintaining flowers, shrubs, and lawns due to their moral factor in defense. So the idea that flowers and shrubs and trees can add to the morale of the general public, I think that's a really interesting concept. And another interesting aspect is that it called on women to assume the principal responsibility in this phase of the garden program. So essentially, they were adding to the women's wartime responsibilities because the men were needed to fight and to work in factories. And so it was left to the women to assume a huge part of the responsibility of planting these victory gardens. That's not to say that men did not participate. They did. It was just on a much smaller scale. 
Now, within this conference, there was a committee on educational materials and methods, which recommended that boys and girls be given encouragement in participating through their various programs like 4-H clubs, Boy Scouts, and Future Farmers of America, as well as other rural youth groups. The committee also recommended that the main source of subject matter and help come from the Department of Agriculture and the state agricultural colleges, so, so meaning the county extension agents. So this means that if people needed to learn how to plant a victory garden or needed help with weeds or insects, things like that, um, that the main source of those educational materials or classes came through the Department of Agriculture and the state agricultural colleges. So during the winter of 1941, the new National Victory Garden Program was hyped up for the spring planting of gardens. In the April 1942 Farm Journal, it announced, quote, The National Victory Garden Program received Uncle Sam's blessing recently when Secretary of Agriculture Wickard and Paul V. McNutt, Director of the Office of Defense Health and Welfare Services, sent out a joint letter to all state governors suggesting a garden enrollment week. This was requested by the National Advisory Garden Committee, recently appointed and headed by Governor Prentice Cooper of Tennessee. Various agencies and garden groups have held meetings and made plans for helping all who want to plant gardens and don't know how to go about it. Any would-be gardener needing help should call on his county agent who is still the old standby. Close quote. So for some people, gardening was old hat. Like, they've been doing it for a while and they probably didn't need that much help. But for many they would be planting a garden for the first time. So for the year 1943, Secretary of Agriculture Claude R. Wickard asked that one million victory gardens be grown in America in 1943. Now, something that I came across that I was not expecting to run across, but I was actually very excited by this, was the definition of what a victory garden is. Now, I have seen the term victory garden tossed around willy-nilly. I've done it myself. <laughs> because if, I mean, since I study World War II, I'll naturally call my garden a victory garden, right? Well, there is a technical definition for what a victory garden is. And this is something that I found in a newspaper article from the Central New Jersey Home News from March 21st, 1943. It says that a victory garden is defined as one that under competent management and without waste of seeds, fertilizers, land, or time produces in the space available just as much as possible of the family's summer and winter requirements of those vegetables that contribute most of the health-giving minerals and vitamins to the food supply. Anyone's garden that meets those conditions is a victory. So now we know. It's not just a garden. It's one that practices conservation in materials and space and provides added nutrition for the individual or family. Now, the aspect of conservation of seeds and fertilizer was a result of there being scarcities. Just like there were shortages of certain types of food, there were shortages of seeds. And if we wonder why that was, I mean, we can just look at today's situation where you know, we've got the normal population of people who use seeds that garden on a regular basis. And all of a sudden there's this pandemic where everyone's at home 
and they're worried about the food supply. So now everyone wants to plant a garden. There's going to be a shortage of tools. There's going to be a shortage of seeds and dirt and just all kinds of things you need for gardening. Like I had a hard time finding garden hoses. So um, all of a sudden with the Victory Garden program, a whole ton more people are needing to plant things and wanting to participate in this program. And they are using up the ready available supply of materials like seeds. So conservation was really important in a victory garden. And also fertilizers. I mean, there was a huge need for fertilizers for the farmers. So if the farmers are using up the bulk of the fertilizers available, then the home gardeners were definitely going to have a hard time getting a hold of that. So does my garden qualify as a victory garden? That was the big question. The answer, sadly, is no. <laughs> but I have great hope for next year. And I have these amazing images of wartime gardens that I can use as a guide. And I will be sharing the ones that I can on my blog. To prepare the public for this new campaign, local Victory Garden Committees were set up under local defense councils. In some areas, Victory Garden work was undertaken by Citizen Service Corps. Block leaders went to each house asking if they were planning a victory garden and advised prospective gardeners to obtain lots through a clearance house established by the Chamber of Commerce. Anyone with unused lots were asked to register them for free use by others. Block and sector leaders also sought out experienced gardeners in the area to elicit their help in advising others about proper planting and gardening, as well as establishing them in informal advisory groups on gardening. I think this is pretty cool that communities were working hard to help their citizens participate in the program, and they were also gathering local knowledge. You know, people that knew a lot about gardening, they were a huge asset for this program in these smaller localities. So essentially, communities using the resources they already had available to them to do their part in the Victory Garden program and to help their fellow citizens succeed. Now, if you wanted to sign up to have a Victory Garden, and this is also an interesting aspect of the Victory Garden program, you needed to fill out a form to inform your local area council that you wanted to participate. And this was important because of numbers. Um, the government loves numbers. And so they wanted to find out exactly how many people were planting gardens and it was also a way of knowing how much help was needed. So these forms to sign up were distributed to school children to take home for their parents to fill out and the children to return the next day. If a household didn't have any school-aged children, a registration blank was provided in the newspapers. This was to provide a sort of census so that the local Victory Garden committees would know how many people were planning on planting a Victory Garden, to determine how much land was needed and to allocate available land to people who wished to plant gardens but had no land of their own. So what was on one of these forms? At the top of the form it says, food will win the war and write the peace, which is a pretty cool slogan, I think. Um, now this particular form is from New Brunswick, New Jersey. There were various types of forms out there, it just depends on what newspaper that you find it in. This one has a few statements and then yes and no answers. So 
So this is what it reads. I expect to have a victory garden in 1943. Yes or no. I have space in my own yard or elsewhere. Yes or no. I would like outside space. Yes or no. I have had a vegetable garden for blank many of years. You fill in the blank. Number in the family. Blank. I expect to can. Yes or no. I have land I would be willing to have others use. And then in parentheses it says, please tell where. And then at the bottom, you write your name, your address, telephone number, and the apartment or flat number if that applies. I think these forms are really cool because they, uh, they say a lot of things. They say what this particular community wanted to know. I like that they ask if they expect to can, despite... I think the stereotyped view we have of our grandparents or grandmothers that they all knew how to can, that actually isn't true. And so I really like this question because not everybody probably expected to can food, um, but that is in another episode coming up. Actually, that will be episode three after we're done talking about victory gardens. Another thing I think is cool about this form is talking about that you need outside space. Like if you didn't have space for a garden, there were people in your community that did have extra space and were willing to let you use it for a victory garden. And I just think that's a really cool uh, community cooperative effort there so that everyone could participate in this program that wanted to. Okay, so why were victory gardens needed? That seems like kind of an obvious question, but we're going to kind of dive into it in more detail. The Regional Office of Civil Defense Director Joseph M. Laughlin urged everyone to join the Victory Garden movement. He said, quote, Victory gardening is a major job for 1943. To eat well, we must plant well. The nation's farmers are doing a remarkable job in producing our food, but the demand races ahead of our supply. One-fourth of our total food production this year must go to our armed forces, to help supply our allies, their fighting men, and the workers who build their weapons of war. Battle lines are long, and supply lines longer. Food stores for future campaigns must be accumulated now. Food must be ready for the gaunt people who look to us for rescue. Here at home, demand for food grows with the increase in war production. All this means less for normal civilian consumption. The solution to the problem lies in victory gardens. They must go a long way towards bridging the gap which widens inexorably between food supply and growing demand. Gardening is war work with a vengeance. Every family growing its own vegetables releases that much more for families unable to raise a garden. Lowered point values on commercial foods may reflect the success of the Victory Garden Program. Close quote. So one thing that really stood out to me from this paragraph is that Food stores for future campaigns must be accumulated now. Fixing a food problem does not happen overnight. Food takes time to grow, and there's nothing we can do to make it go faster. <laughs> well, maybe there's a few things we can help, but food is just going to grow the way it does. So what he's saying is we're looking to the future here. If we want to have a good supply of food for the future, we need to start doing something now. Another thing that stood out to me is that victory gardens lighten the load of manpower needed. So the more garden produce civilians grew, the less men that were needed on a national scale for food production. The Rochester Democrat and Chronicle newspaper gave an example of the importance of victory gardens in February of 1943, saying that 
uh, due to the recent invasion of North Africa, vast amounts of food needed to be hauled there because the Axis had drained the region of food. It was announced that 60,000 tons of food was to be shipped to North Africa. The article stated that, quote, this food makes the difference between a friendly population and one that would be hungry and resentful, close quote. And as the Allies carried the war into other lands, they would need to feed the people there, too. It was a huge responsibility, and it was borne in large part by the American people. So the vitalness of the Victory Garden program really could not be understated. Another reason why the Victory Gardens were needed was because it reduced the demand of strategic materials for canning. So the more people that canned their own food at home with reusable jars, the more tin canned foods were available to go to the military and the demand was lessened. It also helped relieve food transportation problems. So the more food at home and in town meant less food that needed to be shipped there. And last, but definitely not least, why Victory Gardens were needed was because of nutrition. I'm going to read to you the introduction to this book that I have called Food Gardens for Defense by M.G. Keynes. M.G. Keynes was formerly a special crop culturist and the U.S. Department of Agriculture author of Five Acres and Independence. This was published in 1942. This is what it says. A word to gardeners. In recent years, there has been a tendency to consider gardening as a hobby. We have tended to look upon such an activity as a luxury, an expensive one at that. Even the folks in the lower income groups often fail to heed the necessity of having fresh vegetables and fruits in their diets. The more affluent found it all too convenient to stop at the corner grocery store, where a wide variety of fresh and canned vegetables and fruits were temptingly displayed. The can opener was easy to use compared with the effort a hoe required. Gardening seemed foolish. Yes, an expensive hobby when one could buy carrots at five or ten cents a bunch. The wide variety of foods to be had without effort on our part seemed perfect. We had all that we wanted to eat. The National Draft Board took the smugness out of most of us. Their reports told of the great numbers of the nation's youth who could not pass the physical examination. It was incredible and equally incredible the reason given, undernourishment. This was indeed a shock to a country that prided itself on having the highest standard of living of any nation in the world. Plenty of food and at low cost, but under nourishment. Gardening does have something for us besides exercise, something that seemingly does not come out of tin cans. Fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh from the gardens, have health-building and health-protecting vitamins and minerals that cannot be captured and put into a tin. They may look the same when cooked, taste the same, and smell the same, but are they? So that is a really sobering look at why Victory Gardens were so important. If so many young men were turned away at the draft boards because they were undernourished, that was saying a lot about the American diet, where we prided ourselves on the way we could provide ourselves with food, and there was so much food, and yet the nation's youth were undernourished and victory gardens were a way that could fix that which goes right along into our next topic about victory gardens and that is propaganda as was the case with so many things it wouldn't be a wartime program without propaganda that went along with it now looking for victory garden propaganda is a bit tricky because 
most of the famous images out there are either British or they're from World War I. I have not been able to actually find that many World War II American propaganda about Victory Gardens. They are out there, and I just haven't seen very many. So the ones that I've seen are usually wartime posters featuring children or adults or both working hard in the garden. Some show arms or wheelbarrows or boxes full of garden bounty. Posters with slogans like, grow your own, be sure, groundwork for victory, plant a victory garden, our food is fighting, a garden will make your rations go further, your victory garden counts more than ever, war gardens for victory, grow vitamins at your door. Um, They also enlisted famous characters in this victory garden propaganda campaign. One of my favorite Victory Garden images is from the world's finest comics, fall issue number 11, featuring Batman, Robin, and Superman, all hard at work in their Victory Garden. And (laughs) it shows Robin sweating pretty hard as he's working there. Um, I love that image. Disney also participated in some of this. There is a film of Donald Duck in his Victory Garden. That's not what the film is about, but it does show him working in his garden, Victory Garden. And then there was Mickey Mouse. He was the mascot of the Green Thumb Contest. And I will go more into this in the next episode. But there is a really great image I found in one of my farm journal magazines about this particular program with Mickey Mouse and his green thumb. So a lot of great propaganda that really stirs the soul (laughs) of how much Victory Gardens are needed, that it's your patriotic duty to have one, and that by growing this food, you are helping the war effort, you are helping your family have greater nutrition. And that meant that you were saving food for our troops, and for our allies. Our featured cookbook today is The American Woman's Food Stretcher Cookbook. This was edited by Ruth Barrel-Symer. She was the director of the Culinary Arts Institute. If you're familiar with these books, they have so many cookbooks uh, published, uh, especially in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, These are like little cookbook booklets, and there's a whole series of them. Um, But this particular one was published in wartime. Let me see if I find the date. 1943. And this cookbook is really cool because it it is like a little booklet. It's, It's 48 pages. And What I found really cool, besides all the really neat recipes in here, is that it shows you how to make your own fireless cooker. I did not even know this was a thing in wartime. I myself went through a huge homesteading phase where I was looking into all kinds of things like this, um, but I didn't even know they knew how to do this in wartime. So really cool. It's got diagrams and everything. Um, It teaches you how to use a steamer all the different cuts of variety meats, as we've talked about before on this show. And, and it's got some really great images in here too. So in the introduction, 
The title says, let's produce everything we can. Then it says, in the everyday life of a nation at peace, each of us works at the task best suited to our abilities, then changes that labor for the results of another's. Thus, we secure everything we need for a full life and some overflow. In a world at war, this exchange is so interfered with that there is no assurance that we shall be able to exchange our work for the fundamentals of living, food, clothing, and shelter. For that reason, we must produce some or all of these ourselves. And then it goes on to say, almost everyone will have a garden of some dimensions this year, and many will expand all previous efforts. It is imperative, no matter how much is raised, that nothing be wasted. If you find your family cannot eat at all, or you do not need all you can or preserve, look around for a neighbor or a family who can use the excess to advantage. If these are amply provided for, there is always the hospital or the children's home with empty jars to fill. Their ration points need stretching too. So it goes on to talk about animals that can be produced for food, additional fats and oils you can render yourself, and then also talking about that there are many lakes and streams generously restocked with fish and that you can smoke or pickle the excess that you catch. Um, All of these ways you can take care of your food consumption for your family yourself. Um, And so I guess in a sense, this is a wartime version of a homesteading or emergency preparedness manual. (laughs) Um, That's kind of the vibe it gives me, which is pretty cool. So the recipes that I tried, I wanted to focus on things that could be produced in the garden, of course, because, you know, victory gardens. So I, I've i been trying to make a better effort in trying like dinner recipes because I always tend to gravitate toward baking and desserts and yummy things like that. But I really do want to explore more wartime dinner ideas. So I tried this recipe for bean sausages. That's right. Bean sausages. Now, this is a vegetarian friendly recipe. Actually, Probably all the ones that I will share with you for Victory Garden, the Victory Garden episodes will be vegetarian friendly. These bean sausages are made from three cups of mashed cooked beans, cup of breadcrumbs, some sage, salt, pepper, three eggs, water, and fat. So you mash up the beans, you combine it with a half cup of the breadcrumbs, the seasonings, two of the eggs, So you mix it up kind of like you would meatloaf, I guess. Um, And then you beat the remaining egg and you shape the mashed bean into sausages. I took this to mean like sausage links, not patties. (laughs) But then you dip them into egg, the remaining egg, and then into the remaining breadcrumbs. And then you brown it in hot fat. It says to serve with tomato sauce. And this recipe serves six. My recipe did make quite a lot, so I, I can see how it could serve six people. Um, one thing, I did not quite pay attention to how much breadcrumbs to go into the mixture, so I put the whole cup of breadcrumbs in with the mashed beans. Oops. <laughs> but it actually, I think it turned out for the better. Um, I think it maybe held the beans together a little bit more. So I had tons of breadcrumbs in my freezer that I make from grinding up like bread ends and stuff. So I just used another cup of breadcrumbs to roll the sausages in. Were they good? That's the big question, right? Well, my bean hating child didn't even try them. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> because yeah. But um, 
Um, another child said it was okay. And then my husband and I, I think we enjoyed them pretty well. But here's the thing. These things are pretty bland and there is no disguising that these are made from beans. <laughs> the sage did nothing. Like I could barely taste it over the taste of the beans. Now I used pinto beans, cannellini beans, and black eyed peas. I think that was a mistake for the black eyed peas. While I do love them in other things, they the flavor of them was too strong. And I think that's why the recipe suggests navy, pinto, kidney, or limas. Those are all kind of pretty mild beans. So next time I would probably just do some navy beans. But yeah, couldn't taste the sage. Did not taste like sausages. Sorry, 1943. <laughs> but um, what I did notice that while they were bland, that makes them an excellent uh, candidate for dipping into things. So I had this habanero crab ball dipping sauce from a restaurant I went to recently. And I was like, hey, why not? I'll try it in here. Oh my gosh, it was so good. <laughs> um, and then I also made a mixture of sour cream and salsa. So kind of playing into this tomato sauce suggestion in the recipe. And that was really good too. I even tried plain sour cream and that was really good. So that's what's exciting about this recipe is that because of its neutrality and bean flavor, um, it's really great for just dipping in things and you can experiment with this. You could do a cheese sauce. You could do, I don't know, whatever you want with beans. Um, so anyway, that was kind of interesting and exciting. Has anyone been fighting over the leftovers? No. <laughs> um, hopefully they won't be forgot about in the back of the fridge. Um, I think I should have some for lunch today. <laughs> okay. The next recipe that I tried, I just tried two actually, but um, is for apple crisp. Now, I usually try to pick recipes that are really interesting and maybe people haven't heard of or thought of the combination, but sometimes it's just really good to try an old favorite, but wartime style and see how it pans out. So, Apple crisp was my most favorite dessert growing up. And so I have a very specific criteria for what makes a good apple crisp. And it usually involves oats. Now this recipe does not involve oats whatsoever. So I was really skeptical from the get-go. But it calls for six apples. I used a mixture of the wrinkly apples I had in the fridge. Um, I think it was like Granny Smith and Gala. But I think using a mixture of different apples really helps any apple recipe. So it calls for also two tablespoons lemon juice, a quarter cup of water, half teaspoon cinnamon, a cup of sugar, three quarters cup flour, a quarter teaspoon salt, and a third cup of butter. Now, this recipe was weird, um, <laughs> I thought at first. So you pair, core, and slice the apples into a greased baking dish. You add the lemon juice and a quarter cup of water. So there was just liquid in the bottom of this pan. And I thought that was really weird. Um, usually, I just rely on the apples juicing themselves with the sugar um, for the juice in an apple crisp, right? I think that's what most modern recipes do. But just wait, we'll find out what happened. All right, so you mix the cinnamon with half the sugar and sprinkle that over the apples. Combine the remaining sugar and with flour and salt, cut in the butter, arrange those crumbs over the apples, and then bake 
for about 45 minutes and it serves six people. So no oats, like I said, and this weird amount of water. Another criteria I think is important with apple crisp is the salt to sugar ratio. Salt is very important to set off the sugar flavor. It just enhances it. Um, You just really need that balance for the sugar not to taste flat. Some recipes don't get it right. This had a quarter teaspoon salt. So was it enough? (laughs) So this baked up really nicely. It looked amazing when it was done, even though it it was oatless. (laughs) I was also very curious about where that moisture, like what was going to happen with it. (laughs) Oh, and I forgot to mention the sugar. A cup of sugar is a lot, especially for a wartime recipe. But what I did was I used half a cup of white sugar to sprinkle over the apples and then the other half brown sugar to use in the crumble mixture on the top. So it baked up beautifully. It was golden and crisp. That's another criteria for apple crisp. It needs to be crisp, you know, like the recipe title says. And it was. It was crisp. And while it was still warm, it was very watery uh, because, you know, the water and then the juice from the apples. But the next day, there was some left. Not much, but there was some left. And I just set it, I just left it out on my stove because sometimes when you put things in the fridge, it gets soggy. But the sauce had thickened. So it was more like a syrup. And so I, while I was skeptical about that water, what I think happened was it helped to steam the apples and it was so moist in a good way. Um, A lot of times... I've had apple crisp kind of like the next day it's more dry. Not that it tastes bad, but it's, this was like juicy and wow. So I, you know, have a seal of approval for that water added. That was a surprise and it tasted amazing. The salt was perfect and the crust was perfect, which was so shocking without those oats. So if I'm going to make an apple crisp recipe, and I don't have oats on hand, this would be my go-to recipe. It was so good. So I highly recommend this. They do suggest to add a half cup raisins and a quarter teaspoon nutmeg to the apples and to use brown sugar instead of granulated if desired. I'm going to say no to the raisins, but, you know, to each his own. And um, the nutmeg sounds interesting. I think that would be really tasty too. So overall, really great recipes. And these will be up on my blog for you to try yourself. Our story highlight today comes from the March 1942 issue of Farm Journal and Farmer's Wife magazine. If anyone knows anything about me, they know I love this magazine. (laughs) There are so many amazing issues from wartime. But what I really loved in this particular issue was this story from an article about farm victory gardens. And it was called Preacher's Garden. It says that a preacher's garden need not be any more productive than anybody else's. And for that reason, other folks should be able to match the record made by Reverend Claire V. McNeil of Liberty, Indiana. From a 40 by 50 foot garden patch, 
He produced 17 pints of butter beans, 10 pints mangoes, 15 pints corn, 27 quarts of beets, 46 quarts of tomatoes, 8 quarts of grape juice, 40 quarts peaches, 8 quarts sauerkraut, 35 pints of beans, 37 quarts string beans, 30 quarts red cherries. And then he says, besides, I harvested one half bushel of onions and unknown amounts of lettuce, radishes, and other vegetables for table use throughout the season. Not the least enjoyable was an abundance of blueberries and beautiful flowers. So, (laughs) what this article was saying that if a preacher could do this, uh, anybody can do, (laughs) can do this. Um... (laughs) Yeah, well, 40 by 50 foot garden patch. That's huge. Wow. Um, But it's interesting the things that he grew. So butter beans, corn, beets, tomatoes, grapes, peaches, sauerkraut, peas, string beans, and cherries, and then a bunch of radishes and lettuce. Probably some carrots and things like that. Um, Mangoes. That's what I'm curious about. 10 pints of mangoes. Where did he get mangoes? Huh. So I guess he was growing mangoes. Interesting. So, and this is in Indiana. So, way to go, fellow Hoosier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is like the garden of my dreams. <laughs> the victory garden that is in my heart of hearts. Um, I don't know about you. If you've ever like poured over one of those diagrams of a victory garden with the perfect rose and they tell you everything to plant yeah that is hashtag goals <laughs> I keep I want to I want to do that as an experiment but man gardening's a lot of hard work you know and um I really applaud Reverend McNeil for all of his hard work in producing his garden and all of those canned items now what the article does not say is if he canned those things himself we don't know but really though Wow. (laughs) I admire this guy. Um, If your garden was not as productive or if you did not put up all this food, don't feel bad. Um, I'm trying to tell myself not to feel bad. (laughs) Um, What I am proud of is that this season I can beet relish, I can dill relish, and I can salsa. And I can some jam. So you know what? I, I think I did pretty well. Not all of that came from my garden. Just the tomatoes from my garden went into the salsa and jalapeno peppers and that's about it. But, um, but still, I think that's a lot to be proud of. And so whatever your gardening efforts have been this year with how crazy it's been, I think you can pat yourself on the back. And, uh, there's just so much that comes from gardens, not just, you know, the nutritional aspect like was emphasized in World War II, but, the beauty that comes that we can enjoy all those beautiful plants and also just the satisfaction of you know work that we can see the results of and we can enjoy them on our table so yeah next week we will be talking about the down and dirty details of a victory garden so stay tuned for that if you or your family have american homefront stories i would love to be able to share them on my podcast To share your story, go to VictoryKitchenPodcast.com and click on Share a Ration Story. We have lots of fun on Instagram, so come on over and give me a follow. My handle is VictoryKitchenPodcast. 
and I would love your support, which helps keep this podcast going. To do so, go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Creveston Lee and click on support. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.